Okay. If you were here last week, we started the book of 1 Corinthians, and I told you that the first few weeks we'd be talking about um, the, the sort of the theme would be knit together because the first bit of 1 Corinthians focuses on unity. And the language in verse 10 in chapter 1 is this. It says, um, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no division among you and you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. No division and perfectly united are sewing words. I said last week, and that makes sense because Paul's blue-collar job was to be a tent maker, so he knew how to do manly sewing. And he said, I don't want you to be like a torn seam. I want you to be like a, a, a garment that's woven together that doesn't have seams and isn't torn apart. I want you to agree like that. I want you to be united like that. And that's exactly what God wants for us. He wants that for us together to be united in that way. The problem is, is that human beings don't do that very well for lots of reasons. Ten or twelve different ones we'll cover over the course of 1 Corinthians. Um, so what we want to start with today is there, there are two, one big reason that um, people don't get along is the way we think about being wise, being intellectual, being philosophical, being educated. And um, a lot of people over the history of the church have read this passage, the one I read this morning, and have kind of gotten the notion from it that um, Christianity is kind of anti-intellectual. It's not, it's not about what you know, it's about what you believe, you know? You, a lot of times you hear Christians making dichotomies between knowledge and something else, much more spiritual than that. And um, I remember when I, was a, when I went to college, I went to a university that had— a couple college ministries on it, but no staff workers of any kind. Like, if you go to a UW ministry, if you like college students, and you have a staff worker, you need to thank your lucky stars, okay? Because I, when I was 19, I was the chief spokesman for Christianity on a university. And I'm just gonna tell you, that's not a good idea, okay? It's not, it's crazy. And so after I had enough run-ins with professors that made me want some help, I went to my church for help because I thought, my pastors, these are people who think about Christianity. And I had a conversation with one of them about that. Like, how do I get prepared for this? How do I learn what I need to know so that I can live and exist in an intellectual community as a believer? Surely Jesus isn't stupid, and surely my faith isn't. How do I find that out? Because they're not going to teach me that. And his response was, Nick, you need to understand those people at that university— um, you know, they, they worship the intellect, and it's really just about unbelief. They don't want to believe, and you can't help the problem of unbelief. You just need to accept that they're going to be antagonistic and so on. And the good news is, is that um, I knew he didn't speak for God because I'd been reading my Bible, and I knew that's not what the Bible said. But there are a lot of people who either when they're 19 or later on or before that, they, they get that impression from a Christian— and the fact is, is that throughout the whole history of the church, there have always been a percentage of Christians that have been very anti-intellectual. Um, and it's, it can be extremely detrimental, not just to people hearing about Christ and taking the Christian faith seriously, but also our own emotional life. Like, I don't know about you, I'm terrified. There's a level, there's a place inside of me that is terrified to be thought of as a dumb, foolish religious, whatever. There's a place in me. I want to be respected. I want people to think I'm smart. Like part of my self-worth is wrapped up into whether or not I'm bright, I'm educated, I know, I'm in the know on this or that. And I, and I don't think that that's just because I'm shallow. Well, other than that we're all equally shallow. I think it's that, I mean, I think that's part of 
human life. And I think it's especially true the more you are in a culture in which those are the things that are valued. Every culture has things that are valued. And people end up defining themselves on the basis of it. So you go to a town that's a capital city, that's a university center, that's a research town. What do you think the disproportional sense of self-worth in this city is going to be based in? Are you waiting for me to answer? I mean, just our intellectual lives, right? And so there's a couple things that I think I need to say before we dig in. And, and that is just, we got to just—we need to just talk a little bit about, is Christianity just hopelessly anti-intellectual? Is that what this passage means? And is that the reality? And I just want to say a couple things. Because those of us—if you're not a Christian, you come and you hear me read that passage, and it's like wisdom versus Jesus, and you're like, why does thinking—is that against Jesus? And why does wisdom empty the cross of its power? Doesn't that just mean that smart people aren't going to believe in your religion? It's—that's totally cool that you would get that impression, because that's what it sounds like, okay? But if you're a Christian, and you've ever read the Bible— then you should already know there's something really fishy about that, that, that way of thinking. Because in the Bible, wisdom is always extolled as a beautiful and good thing. I mean, it is our religious textbook that has a whole book just dedicated to wisdom. Proverbs. A whole, it's a whole thing just to, and in fact, not only that book, but there's a whole, there's a whole genre in our Bible of books that are wisdom, right? There's there's not just Proverbs. There's Ecclesiastes. Song of Songs is a poem, but it's considered wisdom literature. Um, all the Psalms are considered wisdom literature. And if you think, all oh, the Psalms are all emotional. They're not intellectual. Just read Psalm 73. It's an intellectual, emotional struggle with the problem of evil. There's a lot of intellectualism in, in Psalms. And there's, there's the whole book of Job. The whole book of Job is a spiritual and intellectual struggle with what does it mean when good people suffer and bad people don't? And where is God? And what is sovereign? And what does all that mean? It's all—that's what it is. It's a philosophy book written as a conversation. Guess who else wrote philosophy and conversations? Plato! People used to think in the old days that actually it was a good way to write and study philosophy, to write conversations. People talking to each other. Apparently God had that idea before Plato did. Right? Secondly, one of the things you need to know is in every era of the Christian church, there have been anti-intellectual Christians. They are against science, against learning. There have always been those Christians. But here's what you also need to know. During every era, there was always those Christians that were on the vanguard and forefront of science and intellectualism and thinking and philosophy. From the very beginning to the, to the present, that's a fact. Um, Paul— the book of Romans, the one right before this, is in the University of Chicago edition of great books of the Western world, of philosophy. Justin Martyr, Boethius, Alcuin, Augustine, Aquinas, Kepler, Copernicus, Mendel, Anselm, Luther, Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, still considered by many the greatest mind America ever produced. And he didn't write a lick of science. He wrote all theology, but he was that smart. Chrysostom, Basil, Gregory of Nazianus, Athanasius, Abraham Kuyper, Robert Boyle, Sir Isaac Newton, Descartes, Pascal, Francis Bacon, John Locke, and we've—there's—I could just go on. Um, the, the man who's actually called the father of chemistry, Robert Boyle, while he, was, while he wasn't busy inventing chemistry, he learned four ancient languages so that he could understand his Bible better. 
He learned Greek, Hebrew, Syriac, and Chaldean just so he could understand the scriptures. So committed was he, not just to science, but to the Bible. Lots of people want to say, oh yeah, all those scientists who were Christians, they were kind of nominally religious, but they were really into science. And then later on, it was okay to be a free thinker. That is baloney. That is completely false. That's just wishful thinking if you don't like religious people. Just like we say lots of things against secular people that aren't completely true. It's just wishful thinking. The fact is, is that there, in every era since Christ was dead and risen, on the vanguard of all things thinking have been Christians. And there's no accident to that. Christianity was started by a brilliant Savior who confounded the philosophers of his day. And some of the early leaders of the church were very learned people, including Paul, who would have the present equivalent of not only a PhD, but a number of postdocs. So when he talks about wisdom that doesn't cut it, he's not anti-education. Paul's the most formally educated person in the Bible that we know of. And when he's talking to Greeks in other contexts, he quotes their philosophers because he's read them all. Okay, in terms of, okay, the other points are in terms of biblical interpretation. One of the reasons I try to preach expositionally, that is I take a passage of Scripture and I preach from the passage of Scripture rather than taking a topic that I think is sexy and hot and getting some passages together that kind of talk about it so I can talk about that, is because it's not just my desire to tell you what, what this Scripture says about God so that you can believe that thing, but it's also to demonstrate and model what, how you interpret, read, and understand the Bible. Right? I try to show my work. This is why I'm interpreting. Look at this sentence. Look at why it says that. And, and it, sometimes it might sound feel tedious. Why is Nick telling us to look at that phrase and why therefore is there and what is that? It's because I'm trying to show you how I interpreted it and I'm trying to model how to do it so that when I'm done with 1 Corinthians, you just turn the page to 2 Corinthians. You do it all yourself. You don't need me. Protestantism is based on the idea that the clergy aren't necessary. There is nothing particularly special about us to unlock God. That the scriptures have been revealed and given to the church in written form. And if you can learn to read, you can learn about God. And if you can't, that's why there's preachers. And, you know, hopefully I, I'm God's spoiled child that I got to go to school and study all this stuff. And so I might bring some particular religious expertise to the table and might be able to do this well. But it's not that I'm necessary. It's hopefully just that I'm helpful. Does that make sense? So therefore, there's a couple interpretational issues. One, when you look at how he talks about wisdom here, well, you got to realize he's in the middle of an argument, all right? Now think about the last time you argued with your parent or your wife or your husband or your kid, right? Somebody starts the argument, right? And they frame the issue a certain way, right? And then when it's your turn to talk, the issue's already framed, so either you have to be like, okay, I quit. Let's start later when I get to frame the discussion. Or you've got to start with the category they already set. Right? So if my wife starts an argument like, you're not home enough, and I say, and I say, counterpoint, I don't go hunting enough, that isn't helpful. Okay, I've got to start with the category that we began with, which is, you know, in that, I'm, this is a hypothetical, right? So, okay, real, arg real argument, real argument this week. <clears throat> How much money is it okay to spend to make your house look nice? Real argument, okay? This week, two and a half hours. You can't just go, well, I want to talk about fishing, right? They, they frame the argument, you've got to respond to what they said. That's what Paul's doing. 
the Corinthians started this whole wisdom gig. They're calling this sort of amorphous, ambiguous, non-specific idea of wisdom and pride and eloquence and rhetoric and all this stuff. They just call it wisdom. And all that means is intellectually respectable. People will like us if we believe this. And he says, they say, Paul, we're into wisdom. And Paul's like, what? And he's got to carve the whole thing up. But see, he's got to start with their category. So he says wisdom. You go, oh, that's anti-intellectual. It's not. You've got to track his logic and how he's going to take apart their understanding of wisdom so that they see God's wisdom is in Christ, not in what they're putting their faith in. But it's not that Paul's against wisdom. He's for wisdom. He's just not for that definition of wisdom. Do you see what I'm saying? Secondly, and see, you've got to read the Bible carefully to pick that up. Or you just go, oh, look at that. Christianity's against wisdom. What a bunch of idiots. And you just keep trying. And then you go, oh, I read the Bible. That's just a bunch of blah. That's what people say all the time. They didn't, they didn't pay attention, right? Secondly, okay, listen. Before I say this, I want you to know I am not gloating. Okay, this means yes, this means no. Can we agree that my next point is not me gloating? Okay, see, a couple of people are willing to— Debbie's like, listen, I'm not agreeing anything until you say it. So, okay, and here's what it is. Paul and other biblical authors use sarcasm. The Bible has sarcasm in it. If you read the prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, some of those, it's, it's sarcastic. God says, hey, look at you guys. You got like a block of wood, and you cut it in half, and you, you cooked your supper with this half, and you made a God with this half. That's wonderful and very logical, right? There's, there are places where God isn't just sarcastic, but he's mean. Like people are suffering, and he said, oh, you went to find your healing in that. How did that work out? You're like, where's the sensitivity? right? You get later on with Jesus. Jesus is sarcastic in a number of places in the gospel, and right in this passage. Remember what he says? You know, you, he says, he says, some of you say you're for Paul. Some of you say you're for Apollos. Some of you say you're for Peter, Cephas. Some of you say I'm of Christ. He's like, and then what does he say? It's sarcasm. Was Paul crucified for you? He doesn't say, gentlemen, gentlemen, and ladies, I was not crucified for you. Jesus was. See, I can't even say that without sarcasm, even that. He goes, he listen, was I crucified for you? Is Christ split in multiple pieces? You know, were, were you baptized into my name? Look, this is, of course not, you big dumb animal. It's, it's sarcasm. It's intentional sarcasm. Now, before you think, therefore, the, at High Point Church, it's like open season on sarcasm, okay? I can be sarcastic with my wife and my husband and my kids and Nick. Let me just say a couple things quickly. Because when am I going to preach a sermon on sarcasm? When's that just going to naturally come up, right? In the Bible, sarcasm is essentially a last resort for people who are so hardened and stubborn that they're not listening to reason anymore. It is an intentional merging of logic and emotional humiliation designed to break open somebody's willingness to consider the truth again. It's always done redemptively, and it is done sparingly, and it is done for a specific point, especially when people are too bright for their britches. It is almost always used when we think we're smart, but we've been really foolish. But we were really, we're doubling down on our foolishness. That's the time when we need the truth, but we actually need it in a little bit of a humiliating way to shake us out of our self-certainty so we'll actually listen. Does that make sense? And so, so if you're going to use sarcasm, you need to be careful. The Bible, 
God, I don't think God would say, sarcasm is fun. No, I think God would say the same thing Mark Twain said. It's like the lowest form of humor, and it takes no intelligence to do it. And most of the time, it really does hurt people and belittle people, right? So if you want to sarcastically make fun of yourself, most of the time, that's probably okay. But you need to be very careful how you try to win arguments with sarcasm. Don't be sarcastic to your husband, wife, or your kid. Unless they specifically fall into that category, you've tried everything else, and you really believe it's for their redemption, not you being right. Which, of course, you'll self-deceive yourself sometimes, and you'll have to apologize later, but that's just a whole other thing. Do you understand? Are we clear on that? But if you read a Bible passage, and the author is being sarcastic, and you don't pick that up, what are you going to think? You're going to think the opposite of the truth by definition, right? Was Paul crucified for you? Was Paul crucified? Whoa! Right? So you gotta, you got to track that. And then the, the last thing about this is, if you actually look at Paul's objections here, none of them are intellectual objections. Are they? What is, what's his problem? His problem with these people are, they're divided, they're in factions, and they're boasting. They're finding their self-worth and their personal salvation in something that isn't Christ. And that's a problem. And so, see, what Paul's saying is he's saying, listen, you may be a philosopher, but I'm an empiricist, okay? Real, godly, Christ-centered wisdom always produces three things. Unity, humility, and pleasure and boasting in God. Now, what is your community produced, Corinthian church? It's produced a lack of humility, pride. It's produced factions, and it's produced boasting in your own wisdom and yourself. Now, you tell me empirically, is it possible that what you are calling wisdom is real wisdom? You see what he's arguing? The answer is no. It's not possible. Therefore, we have to deconstruct and reconstruct wisdom. We have to deconstruct and reconstruct boasting. Where the heck am I? That was for—okay. One of the things, if you're sort of new to faith or you've been here a while, one of the verses a lot of people memorize because it's very helpful in understanding how we— grow in Christ and how we're transformed by the gospel is this one in Romans 12 too. Especially the first part of it where it says this. Do not be conformed any longer to the, see those words? The pattern of this world. Now that is basically the same concept of wisdom used sarcastically in chapter 1. Don't be conformed to the general conventions of thought and human self-centeredness of the culture in which you live. Instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. You'll be able to see what the gospel points you towards, right? His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Then listen to verse 3. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. You see what he's arguing there? What is produced by a truly transformed heart? Humility, right? Always produced by humility. And what, is, what are the two things humility does not do? Divide and boast. It's deductive. It's perfectly philosophical. It's modus ponens. See, it's nothing against philosophy, nothing against wisdom. It's all—it's against boasting and disunity and pride and arrogance and turning in on ourselves and not seeing the glory of God. It's all that stuff that Paul is on about. And that's what I'm on about. Now, one of the helpful things to do if we're trying to—because see, here's the thing. We don't just need to think through wisdom and boasting and the other things in 1 Corinthians. To be truly transformed of mind, we have to rethink through everything in life as Christians. Everything. There's, and there's essentially three options when we think through anything that they could be in relation— I stole this from a Halloween article. That's why it's the candy corns. 
okay? But there's three options. Essentially, there are some things you can just receive. They're part of God's good grace and creation. They're for our pleasure and God's glory, and we can just receive them. That's all there is to it. There's other things that they are, they are hopelessly twisted and bent, and to receive them is to receive sin, and we have to reject them. And then there's other things that are kind of a mixture. There, there are really good things in it, but there's also bad things in it, and they've kind of mixed together. And you have to go through this picking through process of cleaning it out and reordering it and redeeming it. It'd be great if most things were the first two. The problem we're gonna, you're going to find in life and, is that a lot of things are in that third category, and it's a lot more labor-intensive, unless you just believe what I tell you, you know, which you should. <laughs> no. Oh, so, so let's practice before we do these two. Okay, you know how people like to use the word natural? It's just very natural. It's like everything you approve of, you say it's natural. Everything you don't approve of, you say it's unnatural, right? Oh, that's so unnatural. It's natural. It's very natural. You should eat that. It's natural, right? I don't like chemicals in my food. I like natural. Like you, you just got this kind of thing. Well, see, the question then is— Oh, sorry. That's, we're getting ahead of ourselves. So— um, you know, natural, what it normally means is I want to do whatever's bubbling up in here, okay? Whatever I feel in my inner psychology and bodily desires that I want to do, I want to do. That's perfectly natural. <coughs> and you get that argument later on in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6. But we'll get to that when we get to that. But right now, just think about, just think about Natural. Right? Now, there are some things that are perfectly natural that you need to just receive, right? Like, how many people got up at some point and was like, you know what? I need to theologically integrate my bodily desire to blink. This needs to be done. I wonder if Nick's available for lunch. Like, we need, I need to work this out. Like, you know, maybe I shouldn't blink all the time, or maybe I should only do it, you know, every 15 seconds exactly, or who knows, what does God want? Maybe, maybe I should blink every three seconds for the Trinity or something, you know? Like, <laughs> right? You're overthinking that one. You just receive it, okay? Same thing with your, you know, you got this natural impulse to breathe, right? Just go with that, okay? Just go with it. I'm mirroring the Spirit. You're going to hyperventilate. Just relax, okay? And receive it. All right? And then there's the reject. Like, you know, when you have an inner urge to kill somebody, just go ahead and be like, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> no. Right? I mean, you're going to have— all, I mean, even if you're not a Christian, you have some kind of idea of what's good and bad based on something, and you're at some point going to have an urge to violate that. And you're going to have to be like, no! Right? And so you've got to reject some things. Now, but there's some things that it's just not that easy. Right? Like, think about this. Your appetite. Right? Now, if you just stop eating altogether and be like, I'm rejecting that appetite thing, you're going to get skinnier. Okay? Right? It's, I mean, it's going to have an effect. And, but if you just do whatever your appetite wants, what's going to happen? You're going to have, you know, really intense diabetes and be, you know, very— you're going to have to buy a bigger car. You know, I mean, like, it's not going to be good. And, you know, it's just—and for everybody, in different ways, you know, some people just will eat delicacies, and they'll just drop dead of a heart attack. Other people will get larger. It's just, you know, who knows? But it's relative to your metabolism, of course. But it'll kill you, right? And the, here's the thing. It's not only that your appetite isn't good in relationship to how much you eat. It's also—it doesn't maximize for pleasure either. 
You'd think, you know, my appetite, it's just, it's not about proper portions, but it's into pleasure. No, it's not! Your appetite does not optimize for weight and health, and it does not optimize for pleasure. That is a fairy tale. Just, just come to my house and watch me ice cream in front of the TV. Okay? Now, I have a geographic tongue. That's disgusting. But I have a limited number of taste buds, right? Limited number of taste buds. And if I take chocolate ice cream on the back of my spoon, and I love it across my geographic tongue, I taste the exact same amount of ice cream as if I take a whole scoop and put it all in my mouth at the same time. Because guess what? My esophagus and the rest of my mouth doesn't have taste buds. So I might get a freezy headache, but I don't taste any more chocolate ice cream. And here's what you need to recognize. Your, your mouth, your sense of appetite, and your sense of taste does not optimize for even pleasure. If you get a little thing with a little baby spoon and you eat it real slow, you will taste the same amount of pleasure, right? But your body doesn't want that. Your body wants the whole scoop. Give me the whole scoop! Burn notice is almost over! Right? I mean, like, you gotta—so, <clears throat> what do you gotta do with your appetite? You gotta say yes, but you gotta say no. You gotta integrate it. You gotta discipline it. See, some things are intellectual, and you can just integrate them. But most things, you've got to mentally integrate them, but then you have to personally discipline them. It's one thing to be like, I should not eat a half gallon of chocolate ice cream. It is another thing not to do it. Can I get an amen? Yeah, I mean, this, from, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You've got to not do it. And that is important. And so there are many things, even natural, you've got to, right? So moving on. That is a cute baby otter. Because they teach you in seminary you should have animals in your sermon. Okay, the first point <laughs> on this is rejection and redemption of wisdom. Okay, we have to go through this process in relation to wisdom. What in wisdom, this amorphous, ambiguous category these Corinthians are using, what in this is to be received, what in it is to be rejected, and what in it is to be redeemed? Right? This is the passage it's from. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. You see the idea? There's a contrast between words of human wisdom and message of the cross. And in the original Greek, it's actually more obvious because message is the same word as word. So it's word of human wisdom and word of the cross. They're opposed to each other. How is that the case? And what essentially Paul is saying is, in this thing that we think of as the intellectual life and wisdom, there are some things in it that are just pure science and pure philosophy and things that— but then built into it are all these other things that don't work. And if you try to just take the gospel and stick it into that big ball, it doesn't work. And it's not just because this is supposed to be eloquent and slick and the gospel isn't slick. Right? The gospel isn't slick. It's not this like super cool logic move that's hilarious. And it's, a, it's a guy who got killed, right? He gets murdered and tortured. He gets buried and he's alive again. And if you believe in him, you can go to heaven. Boom. There's nothing eloquent about that. And there's nothing like, ah, that makes perfect sense. It's an event. It's just an event. That's all. And so it doesn't fit in all this. Because the way you define yourself and heal your inner being and find ultimate personal redemption, however that is for you. And this idea of wisdom is not believing in a crucified Israeli peasant. It's something else. And there's a problem there. And until this gets pruned, this is not going to work. 
You see, see the point here? And, he, and here's a couple things. It's not just about eloquence. It's about the issues with education, wisdom, and intellectualism. And listen, friends, if we are going to be a church in Madison, we'd better figure out what these peculiar pitfalls to being educated intellectual people are, okay? If you, listen, if you get a job in a grocery store, okay, there are going to be pitfalls to that job, okay? If you get, for like, okay, a chef is a great example. What is the occupational pitfall for a chef? Right? Cutting your hand off and not being a skinny cook, right? There's food everywhere, right? So we, that's, that's a, I would, I would not survive as a cook. I would not survive unless I was terrible and I was only eating my food. <laughs> it's impossible for me to just go, that's great. I don't want to eat any of it. That's fan, I, it, it, see, it has its own pitfalls. Here's the thing. It's not that intellectual people or wise people, people who are educated, are worse than anybody else. Okay, we all pretty much stink according to the Bible. However, Anything that you get into has its own pitfalls peculiar to that thing. When you take human nature and you add that thing together, it always makes a different little boom. Okay? It's sort of human chemistry. And so what happens when you take human nature and you put it together with learning, education, intellectualism, and philosophy? What happens? Very specific things happen. They're very predictable. Very predictable. Here's a couple of them. One— um, Learning, intellectualism, and wisdom tend to create certain pitfalls that it also creates an unwillingness to admit, okay? So um, when you know a lot, you tend to naturally think that you know enough to make certain decisions, and you can't know if there's some little thing you don't know that screws everything up. Um, uh, economic philosopher in the last century called it the fatal conceit. That is, I know all this, therefore I must be able to make this decision to bring about this outcome. But meanwhile, there's this little thing down here that if you knew that, it would change everything. And the human, and human history is full of people thinking they knew how to do stuff, and they tried to do it, and it didn't work. And it's, listen, it's not, it doesn't belong to one, it's not just the communists or the capitalists, it's not just the Republicans or the Democrats. Listen, just in the last 50 years, the Democrats had the war on poverty, they didn't go very well, and the Republicans had the war on drugs, it didn't go very well. They just thought they knew how to do it, and they did not know how to do it. And listen, it's not just them. It's every—look at your life. There's stuff in your life where you made calls, and you thought you knew enough, and you made the call, and it turned out you didn't know some little thing, and it messed up everything. And now you're like, oh, why did I do that? Here's the thing. It's human nature. It's what happens when we invest in our minds. It brings about hubris. It brings— about a sense of pride. And here's the problem that comes with that, is that we quit looking for errors in those places where we think we're most learned. We stop listening to our critics. We stop listening to our foes. We think that these, especially the places we know the most, we know what we're talking about. And so if there is a problem that has come from the fatal conceit, we'll never find it until we pay for it. And sometimes if it hurts bad enough, we'll go back and be like, what was I thinking? That was not a good idea. And the worst—here's the, the most important, the worst part is that um, we, it tends over time to focus us in on ourselves. Human learning tends to expand our understanding of what a human is. It tends to be less interested in God because you can't grab God by the feet and study him empirically. He's free, and he resists that kind of attempt at control for purposes of his own glory and his own will. And so you can't 
fit him into the process. And the process of learning just tends to focus more in and in, in on us. And you can see that by what we choose to do with our learning. We tend to make, well, just look at the last 35 years. What have we spent most of our intellectual time doing? Making disposable consumer goods for ourselves. Right? Vast majority of it. And so, and I'm not saying that's bad. I, you know, people make stuff, go, design things. I like my, I like, you know, I like my smartphone. But what I'm just saying is, just look at, we tend to be focused in on ourselves. We don't think in terms of the glory of God. And that's a problem if the thing God is most committed to is his own glory. Do you see how there could be a conflict there? Right? If ultimately our own intellectualism and learning and education aggrandizes us and our importance and our knowledge, and, and what, where does standing come from in that world? If humans are fantastic, the most fantastic thing about humans is what we can do. But what makes what we can do so great is the fact that we can think and do science and accumulate knowledge. And if that's what's so great about us, then who are the best among the humans? The people who do that and that do it the best and do it at the highest levels. And so where does our self-worth start to come from in that line of logic? How, how accomplished we are. And it's fast. And you don't even know what's happening. You just think you're learning stuff. And before you know it, somebody like contradicts something you think you know, and you get pissed. You get mad. Like, don't you know blah, 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 blah. And then you get really mad because they had this whole set of facts that you've never verified that are the basis for their opinion because they listen to like different talk shows or news channels. And you're like, I've never heard of that. But I stand by what I heard. So, the, and, and what that essentially means is that the more you learn, the more you learn, the, the greater the chance that what you learn is going to define you. The more you attempt to intellectually and mentally capture, the higher the likelihood and power of that to turn around and capture you. And the result then becomes— focus on what I've learned rather than the relationships of people that I should get along with. I mean, just look at the city. Does everybody get along great? Well, as long as you believe the same thing as them. What's more important? Ideological agreement or relationship with a human family, you know? There are people on my block. Okay, there's a guy on my block who hates my guts because he thinks I support the other political party that I don't support. He just assumed that from a conversation, and now he basically hates me, and we, we vote for the same people. Seriously? But that's just, that's just how humans are. And it's not just really intellectual people. It's just people who think they know stuff, and some people really do know stuff, and some people just think they know stuff. But it creates the same effect in the human mind and heart. So the question then is, like, what do you do? And see, what, what Paul argues in this passage is that the wisdom of the world has failed, right? Did you, did you pick that up when I read it? He said, where's the wise man? Where's the scholar? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world, right? But you, it's when, right? Like last I heard, last I knew, it was not mostly like evangelical Bible-believing Christians who were like had all the chairs of professoriteness over at UW, right? I mean, it, when has that ever happened that Christian thought and philosophy and science like, ruled the day, right? 1426 to 1540? Is that, I mean, that, Paul's not talking about that. So what's he talking about, right? Well, he doesn't talk about it till the next chapter. 
Now, look at this verse here, verse 9. However it is written, No eye has seen, nor ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. What's that about? Quick, what's that about? You're scared. I know you're scared. You, but don't have it. If you've ever quoted that, you've probably quoted it as about heaven, right? Heaven is going to be so great. Jesus died for our sins, and I believe in him, and we're going to heaven. And no eye seen or ears heard or mind conceived what God has prepared for me. And heaven is going to be awesome. But that's just because we're bad readers, we think that. That's all. Because look at what it says. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom. So Paul's claiming to have wisdom, but it's wrapped up in God. A wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, meaning as an example of this, it is written, meaning they didn't see it, but God even revealed it before it ever happened. That's how ahead of them God is. However, as is written, no eye has seen, nor ears heard, nor mind conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Who's that about? Jesus. And namely, Jesus' crucifixion. Right? Nobody foresaw that. Now think about that. If you're like, if you study for two years to learn everything you can, and you know there's going to be a one-question test at the end of it, and you study all that time, and you get to that test, and, and you get asked that question, and you realize everything that you studied has not made you privy to the answer of that question, you'd be pretty mad and pretty frustrated. And essentially, that's what Paul is saying. All of the human learning that everybody enjoyed, both in the Greek culture and in the Jewish culture, Jewish culture really focused on um, ideological and law and revelational learning of the Bible. And then these people focused on the natural world and natural philosophy. Natural philosophy and biblical philosophy in the hands of people did not get that one question right. He's like, think about it. If that's what your definition of wisdom is, what good is it? And here's why it doesn't work. Because the minute wisdom becomes your savior, you quit looking for one. Can I say that again? The minute wisdom becomes your savior, you quit looking for one. The way this section ends, it says this, for, it, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached. Now, the verse below it is the same verse in the English Standard Version, another really good English translation. Listen how this translates it differently. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it, was, it pleased God through the folly of what was preached. Now, think about what that's saying. God was wise enough to decide that the way to know him wasn't wisdom. And think about that. What if God had chosen not to reveal anything? He left us alone with the natural world, and he decided that it was only going to be through natural philosophy and science that we would put together what we could know about God. That's it. And therefore, the scientist and the philosopher had the best chance, and that's just the way it worked. And the more you knew, the better it was. Such that—and then in that, God would have glorified himself by dignifying wisdom, right? But see, that's not what he did. He decided in his wisdom a wise thing, that salvation would not come through wisdom. 
See, that, see that once you realize that, it's, it, it's, you can be intellectual. You get wisdom back. Think about it this way. Let's say you flew to South Kenya, and you were with a tribe, and things were really bad there, and you wanted to help them. And you had an airplane and a machine gun, and they needed medicine and bread. Okay? It's not that the machine gun and the plane aren't something. They are something. They have important uses. But they aren't bread and medicine. They, they aren't that thing. And so if you just let the machine gun and the plane be them, and you let bread and medicine be bread and medicine, you keep the two separate, then the plane can just be a plane. You won't try to eat it. But that's what it's like when we really seek our personal worth, our inner being change, and our ultimate redemption in wisdom. It's like trying to eat a plane instead of a baguette. Spiritually speaking, philosophically speaking. And so what Paul then says is, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. See, Jesus becomes the wisdom of God. Why? Because he reveals the three things we need the most. Righteousness meaning standing. Holiness, the interchange that we need to be the kind of person we were made to be. And redemption, what will ultimately happen to us. That Jesus is wise in that he reveals the things we need. And our other wisdom was incapable of doing that. And one of the fun things about this is, do you remember the part where it said, um, you, you know, these, this is all wisdom, but then God has revealed it to us by his spirit? There are a lot of Christians that parade around like proud little peacocks because they think that they're spiritual and those dumb intellectual people don't get it. And I don't mean to be condescending about this, but it is a fundamental misunderstanding what the passage is about. When the, when it said, when the Bible says it is through the spirit that you came to believe. It is not saying that if you believe you're spiritual and you get it mystically and those intellectual people don't get it. What it means is wisdom was a mechanism of self-salvation. When you, something was revealed to you by the Spirit, it means the Holy Spirit revealed it to you, meaning God did it, right? You were called. Like five times in this chapter, it says you were called. Meaning God went to you and brought you in. Therefore, Quit bragging, right? Quit bragging. He gave you wisdom. He gave you everything that you need. He did everything that you require. So quit bragging. Quick word on boasting. We're almost done. Paul's really clear that boasting doesn't work, right? Now, I don't know about you, but the famous boast of my generation was that was Al Gore saying he invented the internet. Now, in Al Gore's defense, he actually never said that he invented the internet. He said he created the internet. But it's not—that's a joke, sorry. So this is the actual quote. I took it—okay. I took the initiative in creating the internet. Okay, that sounds bad, but you keep reading. It took the initiative—I took the initiative in moving forward a range of initiatives. I have too many uses of initiative, but let's just go with them here. So that—that that have proven to be important to our country's economic growth and environmental protection, blah, 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 right? So here's what he means. In 1989, under Herbert Walker Bush, he was among a group of Democrats called the Atari Democrats, meaning the like techie 
techie head Democrats. And they thought connecting computers was a really cool idea. So they put forward a $1.7 billion spending bill, mostly in defense, to connect defense computers and then to connect those computers with certain libraries, which was the development ultimately of the seed technology that would be the thing that we then use for the internet. So what that means is that Al Gore's famous boast, which is a little funny, is much better than most of ours. It's much more true than most of ours. Like when I make fun of my mom because I'm taller, right? You're so short, I'm big. I did nothing, right? Or when we, we like, oh, when people brag about their fantasy football team. Okay, can I just get on the record on this? Fantasy football has nothing to do with sports. Teams win games. Players getting stats. It's just math, okay? Get a different excuse to drink beer in a group of friends when you do the draft, okay? Just, it's silly. And people go, my, my team has nothing to do with your players. And there's all, you can't, you think you're, you're not even, a monkey with a dartboard could do the same as you, okay? Like, people, ch- and people for their sports teams. Oh, the Packers, Packers are better than, uh, I didn't coach them, Right? I didn't help—I'm I, a Packer fan because I live in Wisconsin, okay? It's not like I researched all the teams and how they develop greatness and what blah, 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 and what reward. I, I am here. I look okay in yellow, you know? And I didn't grow up in Chicago, you know? So I'm a Packer fan, and so that's it. It's not like I made them good. And, but all the time, we're like—we talk like— All these things about us, we have a hand in. And the reality is, is that you have no idea how intense the community effect of the world has been on you, and almost everything that hasn't been community effect has been essentially genetics. And so essentially the Christian deal is, you'll be judged by your choices, but you better not take credit for them. Which some people don't like. But— Essentially what bragging is, is advertising your self-worth. The thing you brag about is the thing you find your self-worth in. That's why you're bragging about it. You're advertising that you're important. And you're advertising the reason that you're important. Therefore, if you are a Christian who believes in the centrality of the cross, what, is the, what would you brag about? You would brag about you if you knew you were called and that Jesus is everything. You'd just brag about Jesus. You'd be like, Jesus is awesome. For a number of reasons. But you wouldn't say, I'm wise. Or I was baptized by that guy. So I'm in kind of that group. Right? I've actually heard Christians talk about picking who would baptize them. So because it meant something to them. Now, if it's just an emotional sentimentality, that person was involved in leading Christ, whatever. It's fine. But like, some, it doesn't matter. You're baptized into Christ. Not the person—I mean, like, you, you got to get over that. It's Christ. And therefore, if we get that—see, so right, if we get that, if we—there's there's two things that happens. One, we will be able to be knit together. Because seeing Christ for who he is will affect our understanding of wisdom and intellectualism in this way. It'll create humility. And humility will create unity, and unity will create— a lack of boasting and a boasting in Christ, right? But here's what it'll also do. It will give wisdom and boasting back to us. We don't lose them. So you could just say, oh, those are out. No, you were designed and created to take pleasure in boasting. 
and saying you love things and talking about how great things were. You were meant for that. It's just we boast in little things rather than in great things. But God doesn't want to take away the right and ability and impulse in you to boast. He wants you to boast in what's truly boastworthy and what's truly great. He wants you to boast in Christ and not in yourself. And he wants to give wisdom back to you too because once you stop seeking your salvation in wisdom, guess what can happen? Wisdom can just be wisdom. We can use our learning and our sciences and all those things to accomplish great things in the world. And it won't be turned in on itself by our pride and it won't, we won't be trying to use it for our salvation. It can just be good. We can help people and drill wells and build bridges and, and do all kinds of things and do them better and do them more purposefully for the glory of God. Because we'll get wisdom and we'll get boasting back. Because God intended those for our good and his glory. And those two work together. And so it's important that we look to receive, reject, and redeem in the area of wisdom and boasting. We've got to see that we have to stop seeking our salvation, our worth, our standing, our interchange, and our ultimate redemption in our wisdom, in our learning, in our understanding. Education is not our greater hope. And we have to see that what that should—we will know we are succeeding when we are more humble and therefore more unified and find ourselves boasting in the same thing rather than comparatively against each other. And the great benefit to that for us, besides just simply joy in God and uh, and a huge weight going off our shoulders because we can be just a human and not trying to be God and we're humble, besides that, we get back these two things, remade, redeemed as God intended them, so that we can take delight in the things we want to enjoy and we can be wise without destroying wisdom by making it our our salvation, our Savior. Does that make sense? It would be a great thing. But it, we have to do that work, and it's not just head work, it's heart work too. It's both. But if we do it, we will be a knit together seamless garment of people who think and believe well and show a watching culture what it's like to be wise but not worship wisdom and to boast but to boast in great things and not in ourselves and to be a humble and unified and loving community. Let's pray. Father, we lift up um, this, this passage of Scripture, and we pray that you would help us to embody and live and accept its truth. We pray that you'd help us to, to, to love education and support education and learning and philosophy and to, and to give ourselves to science and to the things that you've allowed us to accomplish as human beings. And I pray that many people in this church would be greatly accomplished in these things. And I pray that they would be a blessing to people through their humility and and blessing others who haven't had the opportunity for that accomplishment. And I pray, Father, that we we would be that community that is knit together through unity and humility, boasting in the greatness of Christ and really believing that and receiving back wisdom and the ability to take pleasure in things in a way we couldn't have before because we would have been doing them in a relationship to ourselves. Pray in Christ's name.